Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and once again we're talking to Noel Cruz uh, with episode 4. Uh, Noel, at the end of the last episode you had just got onto the Sabre Squadron as a fully qualified fighter pilot. Yes Dave, and by the way, hi again. Hi. Um, I won't say fully qualified as I think I, I, I explained, I was a category C fighter pilot which right. is like having the P plates. I've gone right, through right, the L right. plate phase, I was now onto my P plates and moved on to 76 squad. But before I go on to that, uh, there's just one uh, area that I'd, I'd like to sort of uh, mention also, getting back over the last three interviews, or particularly the last two where I actually joined the military, I didn't actually stop civilian flying through any of this stage. Right. When um, I was at uh, Point Cook doing that four months of ground school, etc., I kept going back to the Aero Club and flying the chipmunks. And they still had one tiger moth left there. And I decided that I was going to get checked out on a tiger moth. Okay. I did two sorties of jewel on the tiger moth until someone managed to park it on its roof in the middle of the airfield. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how they did that because a tiger moth doesn't have brakes. And normally, you know, you park a tail dragger on the roof by you know, hitting the brakes too hard. Yeah. But there it was. So that ended my tiger moth checkout at that point. And uh, then, of course, went across to Pierce, did all the vampire work, came back to Williamtown and started the, the fighter conversion course. And uh, I remember going for a drive one Sunday afternoon. I went past the Maitland Aero Club's field at Rutherford. And it was a calm afternoon. It was quite late in the afternoon by the time I come back from my drive. Yep. And I noticed a tiger moth park there. So I wheeled in there and thought, ah, this might be an opportunity. I'll just go and check this out. Yep. So I went in there and first thing I just ran to the chief, chief flying instructor whose name was Stan Hone. And I said, hey, I you know, did a couple of hours in a tiger moth, never fully got checked. You know, I'd like to sort of come back here one day and do it. And yep. He said, why not now? And so I fumbled in my wallet and I had a whole 10 shillings left in my wallet from just buying petrol, which is like a dollar. Yeah. Mind <laughs> you, that's worth about $10 today. <laughs> and I said, well, this is all I've got. And he sort of thought for me and said, that'll do. Come on. So the next thing I know, the sun is already setting at this point. We hopped in this tiger moth and... Uh, he said, we just do one circuit, that'll do. Oh, oh, okay, fine. <clears throat> I figured I could handle that. I took off, got on the downwind leg, and he, uh, he said to me over this very scratchy intercom, just do a stall. Oh, no problem at all. So I closed the throttle, he's nose up, Buffett, Buffett. She stalled, recovered in 50 feet or so. And he said, oh, that was fine. Now do a one-turn spin. I thought, huh? <laughs> We're only at 1,000 feet. Yeah, 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 it'll be all right. Okay. So I pulled it into one turn, a spin, and then recovered almost straight away. She went around one turn and recovered about 500 feet. By now, I'm about the base turn point. She said, I was all right, now land it. So by now, it's getting quite gloomy and dark. Yeah. And uh, so by the time I landed, and of course, I was down some, uh, I could hardly see the ground. So I just flared to the landing attitude and waited, and it rolled onto the ground as smooth as silk. And I went, oh, jeez. <laughs> as we taxi, he said, that's cool, you checked. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's fine. So 10 shillings, I got a Tiger Moth checkout. Wow. And this was about the time I was starting the Sabre phase. And uh, the following weekend, I thought I'd better go and do a solo trip in this thing. 
And so I took it, and I don't remember exactly what I did. Just went flying around, did some circuits and a few aerobatics and so forth. Yeah. But just looking at my logbook the, the other day in preparation for this, I just realised that I did that first solo on the Tiger Moth the day before I did the supersonic run in the Sabre. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> and some little time later, I can recall someone saying, but didn't you get the two aeroplanes confused? I thought, no. <laughs> they were kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum completely. Wow, yeah. Um, so... During my whole time at Williamtown, both in, uh, finishing off the OCU and uh, the conversion unit and also in 76 Squadron, I, uh, I used to pop out there and, and fly the Chipmunk, Tiger Moth or the Cessna. The Cessna was not my favourite aeroplane, but it was good for taking the odd girlfriend that I'd met for a, for a fly, so right, right. it helped along that way there. So until I actually left Australia, I was still maintaining my civilian uh, qualifications. Indeed, it was during that time at some stage, I think Stan wanted me to do some parachute dropping work for him which I think I did one of only, but that required a commercial license. So somehow by passing a test, I magically got a commercial license, but it seemed to be undramatic at the time. But then getting back to the primary uh, thrust of things, it was, uh, I joined number 76 fighter squadron uh, in February. Yep. And um, it was, a lot of people don't sort of realize what you do in a fighter squadron in peacetime in a, in a country miles away from, uh, from any war conflict and so forth. And basically what you do is just practice. Yes. Yeah. It's like an extension of the flight school, whereas you just do practice. It's on-the-job training. A bit more flexible, of course, because we did, uh, uh, we went to different places to do what we do, but there was still a weekly air-to-ground gunnery and then the air-to-ground rocketry and all that sort of stuff. But within about um, a month of getting there, I think it was in about March, we went, uh, the first time I'd ever been there, to Darwin. Okay. For just a big exercise up in Darwin. I'd never been to the tropics before, and man, was it hot. Hot and sticky, and of course the aeroplane doesn't perform quite as well in those temperatures. Um, but again, we did, uh, we exercised the radar unit up there, and they used to do what we called pairs, intercepts, etc. Yeah. But I suppose the highlight of that particular exercise was for the first time I got to drop a high explosive bomb. Oh, cool. Up until now, we'd only been dropping practice bombs. And we dropped our bombs on a place called Quail Island, which was a bit around the coast. And all it was was a large mud flat. Really. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and, they, and, and so we dropped high explosive bombs. Now, I should explain that in our uh, practice bombing patterns, we used to fly four aircraft, but for high explosive bombing, we only used two aircraft because you didn't want the second aircraft too close to the first aircraft when the bomb went off. Right. Because there was a bit of a blast effect there. So we just flew two aircraft on opposite sides to each other and also enabled the, the other aircraft to watch the explosion for the first time you'd actually see something go bang. Right. But of course, the disappointing thing was that when a 500 pound bomb falls into a mud flat, it just makes a big split. <laughs> mud goes up 500 feet in the air and then just settles again and there's no crater, no nothing left. You know, it just sort of settles again. So I don't know if this mud flat was ever frequented by saltwater crocodiles or anything like that, but I think they get the message pretty quick and get the hell out of there. Anyway, so we, the whole squadron managed to drop... Oh, 30 or 40 500 pound high explosive bombs on the Quail Island and after it was all over there was not a single thing different about Quail Island (laughs) it was still just a big mud flat (laughs) and uh, and then we we came home we did uh, um, some interesting work up there but the next memorable thing for me was on the way home uh, we got delayed for some reason and I was being a junior pilot was on the wing of one of the more senior guys and so we wound up getting back into Williamtown at night. Yep. Now, night flying in the Sabre is interesting. Night formation is very interesting. Yeah. 
Most modern aeroplanes have some sort of formation of lights to assist you doing it. We had none of that. All the Sabre had was the standard navigation lights. Yeah. And so you sat there and just formed a little triangle of lights and sort of kept yourself the right distance. Well, as it's getting darker and darker, um, I noticed that two of his three lights was out. They weren't working. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then we let down into this Merc. We had to do a ground-controlled approach. And all I had was a, a wingtip light, a little green wingtip light, because I was sitting on his right side. And so I sort of got myself as close as I did his green light and just kept it there. Yeah. And that's all I saw for about the next 10 minutes, <laughs> hanging on to dear life until the runway appeared in front and we landed. And it was pouring with rain and blowing with wind, as it, 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 it quite often was at Williamtown. And I thought, well, this I'm an operational fighter pilot. Now, thinking back on it now, I'm thinking, holy crap, you know, <laughs> that was a bit dodgy. But, you know, you, you, you go and uh, park your airplane and get changed and go to the mess and have a drink, and it's just like part of the deal. So that was sort of a highlight of that first thing. Yeah. Um, and then just shortly thereafter, we had a, a new fighter combat instructor who joined the squadron. Every squadron has a, a fighter combat instructor of their own on staff to sort of help coach the, all the junior pilots like me into getting better, sort of an extension yep. of, the, of the conversion course. Yep. Yep. And this new guy, he decided that our bombing accuracy was not really good at 45 degrees and we we're going to up it to 60 degree dive bombing. Okay. Sounds good on paper. Holy shap again. I mean, diving at 60 degrees, you might as well be vertical because it felt like that. And in fact, the steeper you dive, theoretically, the steeper you dive, uh, the, the more accurate your bomb is because the less gravity drop. I mean, right. Stukas in World War II and the, and the Grumman Avengers and so forth, particularly during the, the Midway Battle, you can see a film of that where they were literally diving vertically yeah. against the carriers. Yeah. But they had these huge speed brakes to sort of keep their speed under control. Well, we didn't. We had a, a, a pretty good speed brake, but it was never intended for diving this steep, I don't think. And so we started initially just by doing practice dives. Uh, we had a couple of times, and you literally, we, we, to set up a practice pattern, it was just like flying a circuit. You fly sort of a base leg, and you look over the side, and then you roll in and set your angle, because we didn't have any other way of telling what our angle of dive was except by eyeball. Right. There was a guy on the ground, in addition to these quadrant hut guys I mentioned before, which gave you the fall of the bomb. He sat there with a bit of a theodolite and gave you as accurate as he could, um, considering he was a little bit offset from the dive angle your dive angle. Okay. So you can, uh, so, so if you got a lousy score, it could be because you were diving too shallow or too steep. So initially we all went out and dove at 60 degrees and he's giving us rebacks of 50, 48, 52. So you still realize we're 10 degrees shallow. Yeah. So eventually you got to the point where you, you just literally flew over the top of the target and then rolled upside down and pulled <laughs> and prayed. And this got your angles of 60 degrees. So after doing this for a little bit in practice, we started dropping these little flashbangs again and it did increase the accuracy okay um probably by about 30 40 percent all the scores were coming down because oh. of the less gravity drop in a steep dive but it was um it was a bit of a an adrenaline rush diving at the ground at this steep because we started to pickle at 4,000 feet and then pull like blazers about 6g and you'd be up by 2,000 feet and of course, if you uh, if you sneezed and just went a bit too low, then the trees look awfully close because you're zooming out the bottom at about 450 knots. And even though it was supposed to be out at 2,000 feet, the ground was really rushing at you. Yeah. But it did work. Um, so that was sort of the next thing in my learning experience to, to get it a bit better. And then um, we went on an exercise to Townsville, where again we did high explosive bombing on a a target north of Magnetic Highland called Cordelia Rock. And this was a rock, yep. really hard rock. And apparently it been used as a high explosive target for some years by Neptune anti-submarine people. And I don't know if Sabres have bombed on it before. But when we got there, most of the Neptune crews, we mentioned the bar, were laughing about 
um, how we never hit the rock, you know, that there's a flag that's been on the top of the rock there for the last 20 years and no one's knocked it down. So yep. this was a bit of a challenge. Yep, yep. So here we are now with our high explosive bombs, which I must also mention, have even less gravity drop than a practice bomb because they're a lot heavier for their streamlining. So they have almost twice the terminal velocity. Right. And by the time we added that to our 60 degree dive, we actually got some really good accurate dives. And in the space of a week, number 76 squadron lowered the island by six feet. <laughs> oh, Blew wow. the crap off the top of this island, including the flag. <laughs> <laughs> and to the extent that, and we didn't realize it's the time, and I don't think most of the people in, in Townsville knew either, that the Cordelia Rock is on the same rocky substrata as the town of Townsville. And every time we hit it with a HE bomb, the town jumped an inch. <laughs> And after a week, there were complaints coming in from the townsfolk saying, what the hell is going on? They thought there was demolitions in the main street or something. Yeah. And it was us you know, blowing up uh, this, this rock. Wow. So we all felt pretty proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> so here we were dropping these really big bang bombs at a, at a much steeper uh, dive angle. The next highlight of, uh, of my, uh, my short career at that stage happened um, after I'd been there about four months. I was no longer a junior pilot. Another conversion course had happened and two or three new guys turned up. So yep. now I'm only about the fourth junior in the squadron. Yep. And the boss walked in one day uh, into the crew room and said, Noel, go out in the hangar. Something that you should see. To which I said, well, what, sir? Don't argue, Noel. Just get out there. So I walked out into the hangar and there was Sabre 941 with my name on the side. Right. Ah, oh, what an ego boost that was. You know? All the, hot, all the senior pilots all had their name on the side of the aeroplane, and there was me. I'd made it. I now had my own Sabre. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> With my name on the side. And, uh, yeah, it was just another ego boost on top of all the other ego-boosting <laughs> things that had been happening over this time. Um, now, a lot of people think, oh, that's your, that's your aeroplane, you fly only that. Well, no, that wasn't the case at all. It was a PR thing more than anything. Yeah. You still just flew whichever aeroplane you were allocated, depending on servicing state and refuel state or how it was how it was configured for what weapons uh, training you were doing that day. Um, but it just felt good. Every once in a while, if you know, you're going out to fly and your airplane was one of the four that was scheduled, then you just say, well, I want that one so yeah. you could fly with your name on it. So I probably flew it more often than any other numbered airplane at that stage simply because it had my name on the side. That was pretty cool. And so I've got photographs of it from about 100 different directions, of course. That <laughs> <laughs> so was pretty good. And then uh, more exercises. Um, so we, we got to do most of the things we practiced in different locations, which of course was important because it's one thing to practice on a practice range, like anyone who shot a gun on a practice range knows, it's quite different when you actually go out in the bush and have to aim at a, at a moving target or a real live animal yeah. or a real live person or something like that. Yeah. So this, this expanded our ability to assess our dive angles and, and slant ranges and all. Um, by going to these different locations. So we had the, all these exercises with the army. I can recall, I think my first kill, it was almost a kill, was an exercise with the army where we were zooming around trying to find trucks and things on the ground who were supposedly the enemy. And I happened to spy this, this army truck going along a road and about to enter a stand of trees. So I did a quick mental calculation as to how fast I thought it was going and how, exactly how long it would take to come out from the other end of the stand of trees. Yeah. So I dove in and pointed at that end. And by good luck or whatever, I happened to pick it perfectly because as the truck came out from the stand of trees, he was confronted by the nose of a sabre coming straight at him, taking film. 
and must have got him completely by surprise because he swerved and went off the road and barrel rolled into a ditch. (laughs) (laughs) I believe the driver and the people on board were okay because he wasn't going that fast, but I think I rode off a truck. (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't allowed to paint a truck on the side of my (laughs) aeroplane. I felt pretty good about that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, we're now sort of getting into towards the end of the, the, the of the first year there, about September or so, when it supposedly <clears throat> hit the fan. I can recall we'd only just come back from another exercise in Darwin, and uh, there was a particular weekend. We we're just going because the Air Force never works weekends, so we uh, we're all heading off to do whatever you do weekends. Yeah. And we we're told on the Friday, closed base. No one goes home, including all the married people. I mean, stay here. Yep. So we also looked at each other and thought, what's going on? And not a word was said. The whole of Saturday, we sat around reading books and doing dumb things, very bored, and no one was saying. The word was leaking out that some, something really big is about to happen. Saturday evening, about 7 o'clock at evening, we were all called down to the squadrons, everyone, our squadron, the other squadron, and were briefed on the fact that Indonesia had just declared war on Malaysia, or confrontation, as it was officially called. Yes because the Federation of Malaysia had just been created. Indonesia had said it was not right, and for reasons best known to themselves, they decided they were going to confront them over the whole thing, which uh, they had a common border in the Borneo-Sarawak area, which was pretty much a hot spot. But also, from the Air Force's point of view, we were expecting, we don't know what, some sort of aerial incursions. There were two Sabre squadrons in Butterworth in Malaya. Uh, The whole squadron was put on, or all those squadrons were put on instant air defence alert. And we were told as 76 squadron that we were going to deploy the whole squadron to Darwin's air defence up there. Okay. 75 squadron, our sister squadron, was split. They gave us some of their aeroplanes to, to back up our strength and, and some of their pilots, but half of their pilots were also then sent straight to Butterworth to back up the pilots up there because there's plenty of aeroplanes up there. Yeah. But they, they thought there might be a bit short of pilots for this constant rotating uh, alert status. So suddenly we thought, wow, we're going to war. Here I am, a six-month seeker fighter pilot. I'm already going to war. Sounds pretty horrendous, but at the time I thought, yeah, <laughs> can I actually apply myself. So I can remember we deployed our squadron to, uh, uh, to Darwin Sunday morning. We get up there, and there's all our aeroplanes out there with live sidewinders hanging underneath them and big ferry tanks, which is a bit of a... Um, you can't do anything with big ferry tanks on it, even if you've got sidewinders, but you had to get, you used them to get there. Yeah. And the guns were all loaded. None of the plugs were put in, so they wouldn't actually, couldn't be fired yet, but they were mounted on the aeroplanes. The troops had worked all night and got them all set up. And we launched out of Williamtown, I don't know, about 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. First stop was Alice Springs to refuel. And we got in there in about half an hour to refuel and turn the aeroplanes around. And at that point, they plugged in the guns and plugged in the missiles. Okay. So I can remember flying into Darwin in my aeroplane with my name on the side with live guns and live missiles in a, in a formation of about eight aeroplanes and again thinking this is it. <laughs> this is the Battle of Britain all over again. Here we go. And, and that, uh, that was really interesting because uh, we got word back uh, almost instantly from the guys who were sent to Butterworth from 75 Squadron because how do you get them quickly to Butterworth or to Malaya? You put them on a Qantas 707, don't you? Okay. Qantas 707 stages through Jakarta. Okay. So here are the pilots going to defend Malaya against Indonesia, flying through Indonesian capital in a civilian jet. And these guys quickly sent back word that 
when they were taxiing down the taxiways and the runways at the Jakarta airport, there were all these MiG-17s lined up there with grass growing up through the wheel wells and flat tyres. And they thought, is this the enemy? <laughs> You've got to be joking. <laughs> so straight away we started to get this feeling that there was a bit of a Clayton's War. You know. But you know, the politicians around were treating it seriously and so were the local townsfolks. And this was the interesting thing because many of the older folks in Darwin had been around since World War II. Yes. When uh, you know, Darwin was under serious uh, air attack for weeks or so and uh, from the Japanese and was quite damaged and a lot of people died. And so the older folk there remember that and they thought, oh no, not again. So of course we lob in there and you strut into town with your flight jackets on, which is always the way, and you, you, know, you couldn't buy a drink. Everyone was offering you free drinks, you know, have a drink, have my girlfriend, have my wife. <laughs> And for a 20-year-old hotshot fighter pilot like me, this was just Christmas. <laughs> it really was. You could, you could fly inverted down the main street at 500 knots and people would applaud. <laughs> Try that now, you get thrown in jail. <laughs> so we got there on a roll and, and everyone was all hyped up for a while, but nothing happened. And then nothing continued to happen. And nothing happened some more. So they scaled down the whole thing to a permanent uh, establishment of about six aeroplanes okay. and rotated guys up there every uh, month, month about. And the, and the same thing happened up in Buttle. It was scaled down a bit. We'll talk a bit more about that at a later stage when I actually got up there. But it was interesting from the point of view, it certainly made you think operation. You know, it's all very well to have a practice round and say, oh, well, I missed the target by six feet, I'll do better next time. Okay. But when you actually think, well, I might really have to do this, you actually start to focus. So everyone's practice scores and all improved. And one of the highlights, if I can call it that, or lowlights of, of this whole thing was the, the government or someone higher up, much higher up than me, had thought, what if the bad guys come over at night? The Sabre was a day fighter. You had to be able to look out the front to see your target. And someone had decided, well, the missile can track infrared at night. Yeah, but how do you see where to point it? So they decided that they would try and check out our night fighter or night intercept capability. Yeah. And, of course, in those days, uh, the radar systems we had were just the old raw radar. It looked like something straight out of a Battle of Britain movie. The controllers were exceptionally good, I must admit, they used to have these plastic overlays and these little fuzzy little dots crawling around on this cathode ray screen. But you, during, during our sort of day intercept practice, they can normally put you to within half a mile line of stern of your target, okay. provided it wasn't manoeuvring too hard. And it's assumed that if a bomber's coming in to bomb, he's flying a straight line. So they thought, well, they're pretty good at their job, and they were. And, uh, and the missile can sort of see in the dark if you point in the right direction. So let's see if we can put the two together. So we did some night intercepts. Um, with the missiles, unplugged so we didn't inadvertently launch them because we always carried live ones. <laughs> um, initially we did it with the navigation lights on just to make sure that you know, it was working well and it seemed to be okay. The deal was that you were intercepted onto your target, one sabre would lead be the target and the other sabre would, would come in behind and, and then they'd, we'd swap over. Yeah. And we did that initially uh, about a thousand feet below the target, target altitude, and um, the aim was to get us to within about half a mile line of stern. And it seemed to work not too bad. The deal was that you'd come in behind and then you'd pull the nose of the, of the aeroplane up about 10 degrees and sort of use the rudder and the elevators and wave it around a bit until you got either a green radar lock on light, which is the range radar, as I was explained before, or you heard a growl from a missile and you'd launch. Okay. And so we were getting about a 75% success rate with this. So we thought, yeah, if we really need to, we can, we can intercept them in the dark. Yeah. And they said, well, let's now, let's now try it with no navigation lights. 
Ooh, okay. <laughs> and I can remember I flew with a guy named Dick Waterfield. He was one of the 75 squadron pilots who was allocated across to us for the duration. And um, I was the target initially, and he came in, all the lights were off. He came in behind and said, yeah, gotcha. You know, got the tone the whole bit, so it was my turn. And I got radar vectored in behind, and the guy on the radar saying, yeah, you're one mile and closing, three-quarter mile, and I'm waiting to, for the half-mile mark, half-mile now. Eased the nose up, waved it around a bit, nothing. Not a growl, not a light, not anything. And the next thing I hear from the radar guy is the paints have merged. And I glanced at my altimeter, I'm now only 200 feet below his assigned altitude, and of course his altimeter errors at those altitudes. Yeah. So I hit the transmit button and said, nav lights, and blink, right above me, a pair of nav lights. One out the left side of my canopy, one out the right. I was oh. about 20 feet right underneath him and closing. Oh. Um, then I, first I said it, then I did it as I pushed away. <laughs> and a couple of other guys had similar experiences. Like I said, we had about a 70, a 60% success rate, but the other 40% means you're going to have immediate collision. <laughs> so the message went back to the high command that, yes, if we really have to, we'll give it a go, hoping that a larger bomber might be, show up a bit more readily. And uh, But let's not practice anymore because we're going to lose someone. <laughs> yeah. And we all went, oh, thank God for that, yeah. I heard... A thousand years later, um, some Indonesian pilot said that he actually flew Badger bombers during that period, and he'd actually flown to Alice Springs and back, and no one intercepted him. Okay. Uh, it may be true. I don't know. The Badger bomber certainly had the range to do that. It was just a big, slow, old lumbering thing. It would have been a great target. And obviously, they would have crossed the coast way south of Darwin, because I know if he'd come anywhere near us, we would have blown him out of the sky. Yeah. You know, so maybe he did, but you know, they obviously smart enough not to come anywhere near us because we only had you know, half a dozen airplanes with about a 100-mile combat radius with no tanks and so forth. So if you stay outside of that, you're going to be all right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's all ancient history now. Well, j just a couple of questions there, Noel. Yeah. Um, the, the actual... Um enemy aircraft you mentioned the badger and, and the mig 17 what mm -hmm. else what else could they have brought across to australia that's about all now in fact they didn't even have the the mig 15s and 17s couldn't have made it there at all right it was only badger bombers but interestingly they i don't know whether the russia i think the russians invented and sold these things to um to the indonesians they had a thing called the the camel missile okay it was one of those nato code names and what it was was an unmanned MiG-15, which could be carried underneath or in the bomb bay of a Badger, okay? Right. And it was like the, the, the first standoff weapon, if you like. It was almost unguided uh, in terms of radar. I don't know how, what sort of autopilot setup it had. But the deal was that it was loaded with explosives. It could be brought to within about 150 miles of the target and then dropped and then launched. Yeah. And it would then fly to the target and go bang, almost like a V-1 buzz bomb, you yeah, know, yeah. highly unguided, but, you know. This was the idea. So we used to practice intercepting these things by having two sabers fly in formation, one saber intercepting. And at an appropriate point, the uh, one of the sabers would pull up and away, pretending it was a bomber, and the other one would then accelerate downhill in this very flat dive up to nearly you know, Mach 0.95, which is hard to catch. Yep. Um, so you either had to be well ahead of the game or you'd blow up the bomber. Maybe there was some, ra I can't remember now, there might have been some radio link between the two of them to guide this thing. And so we used to practice these camel missile intercepts and so forth. Okay. And we figured if we had to do that in the dark, that would have been really interesting because once this thing accelerated to about that speed, or we thought it could go to that speed, I subsequently learnt that uh, MiG-15 couldn't go back past Mach 0.9 without suffering the same problems as the old vampire had. It used to buffet and shake. It was not a transonic aeroplane at all. Right. Uh, it had serious limitations that way. But we didn't know. A lot of the stuff we didn't know about at the time. Yeah. 
So we used to practice it. Uh, the, the deal was the radar controller had to put you almost in front and below so you could pop up and launch the, the missile because one of the, one of the techniques was to actually get intercepted, if you like, onto the target track, but a mile or so ahead of it and about 10,000 feet below. Right. So if they're at 45,000 feet, you come in at about 35,000 feet, which was an ideal altitude, 35. That's where the tropopause is, and that's where you get the best acceleration out of a jet engine. Technical details, I know. And then, of course, you would actually pull up. It's quite steeply, 45 degrees nose up, which means you're slowing down rapidly. Yep. And so the bomber, which was behind you, would now sort of float across in front of you just as you sort of reached the top of your ballistic trajectory and launched your missile. And it worked. I remember using that against an Avro Vulcan who was at 55,000 feet over the Straits of Malacca years later and actually got him. Okay. But we actually intercepted two miles ahead. Yeah. So we had to practice all these different techniques, mostly against you know, badger bombers if they're going to drop directly or these kennel missile things. Right. None of which actually happened. Right. Didn't happen at all. The, the other question I had, um, you mentioned the other. The, there were two Sabre squadrons already at Butterworth when the confrontation started. Uh-huh. Uh, tell me what the situation was with Butterworth. Was, was that a permanent Australian base? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big base. Been there for years. Yeah. In fact, that's, if you like, the subject of the next talk because I got posted there and spent two and a half years in that environment. And that was very interesting. Um, but just very briefly, yeah, we had, we've had a, or we had a, a base there going back to the 50s because back in those days, the um, the political philosophy was what they called forward defence. Yep. Rather than wait for the enemy to come to your shores and defend yourself, you go and base yourself out there and fight them before they get here. Right. Yeah. Right. So ever since uh, Malaya gained its independence back in the 50s, um, we have well, I can't remember the exact date, but yeah, been there for a long time. And it's a whole political thing about what was going on up there and, and, and how we were involved, which is the subject really of a, of a completely different talk if right, I right. defer your question till then yeah, yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so this went on and I say I won't say boring but things developed into very same which we didn't do a lot of other exercise at that stage because of this very serious commitment um, to uh, to defending Australia's north and after a while the locals in Darwin got sick of us flying a low level down the main street and they stopped buying us free drinks and all so it's sort of settle down into this normal situation, yeah. if you can say. But we were at least still flying. We still had priority. We had, any given time, there was four aircraft parked down the end of the runway on, on two-minute alert and five-minute alert. Five-minute alert means you could actually uh, sit under the wing of the airplane in the shade. Two-minute alert, you were in the cockpit uh, and had to be airborne operation within two minutes. Normally, you could do it in less time than that. Um, but that was the, the window to intercept whatever came in. And this was 24 hours a day. Oh, sorry, no. Daylight, beg your pardon, um, ongoing. So that was a huge commitment in terms of manpower to rotate them because sitting out in in, in that sort of heat for a long time, you have to, after about a couple of hours of doing that, you have to go back and have a light hand sleep and take a lot of water in. And those days, people weren't so big on hydrating. Everyone's walking around with water bottles these days, hydrating. We didn't hydrate, we just sweated it all out (laughs) and then drank it at the bar later on, which I think is probably not the way to go. (laughs) A lot of liver problems came came about that. Um, and of course, I was getting a little more senior all the way through there. And um, one of the things that comes to my mind, and I wrote about this in my in my book, the navigation book that I wrote, because it was it's one of those memorable nights um, that has, quite frankly, never been repeated. And uh, if I could just bend your ear for a moment and talk sure. about it some more, because I I was now a section leader. 
or I was allowed to lead a section under controlled circumstances, which was a pair of aeroplanes. Yeah. And one of the more junior guys um, was on my wing. But it was supposed to be four of us taking four aeroplanes home to Williamtown, which were being replaced by four others because all the major servicing wasn't done at Darwin. <clears throat> and normally we'd launch out of Darwin about 10 o'clock in the morning and be back at Williamtown after a refueling stop in Townsville, you know, four hours plus refueling time later by mid-afternoon. My wingman's aeroplane went unserviceable and we did not get out of Darwin until about two o'clock in the afternoon and uh, flew across to Townsville. Uh, it's only about a couple of hour leg at that, that heightened speed and the refuel took about an hour to turn around. So by the time that we were ready to, uh, to go again, it was winter time, the, the sun was starting to set. So I figured, okay, we have a, a night trip home, no big deal, and uh, launched out of, out of Townsville. By the time we got to 40,000 feet, the sun was getting quite low, even at that height. Uh, we could see the sun going down, but down below it was quite dark yeah. because the sun had already set on the ground. <clears throat> this time, at least I had a full set of navigation lights so my women could, could sit in there, but my old steam-driven radio compass, right, which you had to tune as I said before, the yeah. It had a little light in the tuning window and that didn't work. So I couldn't see what frequency I was tuned to. Yeah. But I had a rough idea where the Williamtown frequency was, which was miles away, like two hours at Mach point nine away. But I figured, well, I don't need anything till then. So I fumbled around and found that and, and set it roughly and then just sat back and pointed. And within about half an hour, uh, the sky had gone completely dark. The ground was obviously completely dark, but also a, a layer of cloud, I don't know, about 20,000 feet, yeah. and, and down below us. So it was completely black below. There was no moon, but every star in the universe was out. And of course, by now, of course, you're night, you become night accustomed. You're breathing slightly enriched oxygen, uh, mixing your things, which means you're not suffering any night vision problems. That was just sparkling. So I'm just pointing this thing on a heading, and suddenly notice that I'm pointing straight at the Southern Cross. Right. There's south. So I didn't look at my compass after that. That was south. I looked at my watch and said, right about now, I've got another hour to go. <laughs> so sit back and, and fly the aeroplane. You have to fly reasonably smoothly because you've got a, hang, a guy hanging on your wing. Well, of course, he eased out a bit because we weren't in cloud. And um, as I say, I wrote about this in the book because it was the most magic evening. You're sitting in this huge bubble canopy uh, with a better view than any astronaut's got. Well, maybe not now, but back in the early days. Yeah. And you might as well have been in low Earth orbit because you're completely divorced from the ground. You're actually out there amongst the stars and it was just so clear and so brilliant. And you know, the, the, the images burned into my memory. They will never go away. I've never had a night like it. It was smooth, it was starry, like you could see everything. I did, you just don't realize how many stars there are in the universe until you can get above 50% of the Earth's atmosphere in the dark like that with no moon to, to, to dazzle you. And uh, the only sort of pinpoint I got from the point of view of navigation was that about half an hour before my ETA for Williamtown, this large, dull glow of, uh, of lights went past under, off my left wing, and that was the city of Brisbane, <laughs> <laughs> glowing up through the lights. And about 30 minutes later, we had to start a descent. So we went down into the, into the cloud, and all of a sudden, we're back to the old weather again. So yeah. after flying in this absolute fairyland, if you like, we wind up in close formation, letting down through, broke out a cloud of 500 feet with blinding rain and 20 knots of crosswind and thumped it on the runway. But I remember we got, we both got out of the airplanes and ran, get out of the rain. And, and my wingman said, wow, he said, wasn't that magic? I said, yeah, yeah, it really was. 
Um, so it's just one of those, those terrific moments yeah, um, to, to be to be in that sort of airplane at those heights. Anyway, that's nothing to do with operations. It's just what pure flying is really like. It's yeah. really it's fabulous. Yeah. I bet you wish you had a, a GoPro with you. Oh, yeah. Oh, GoPros, if they were around in those days, yeah. there's so much we should have filmed. Yeah. Mind you, there's so much that we couldn't release either. True. <laughs> the sorts of things that we used to do with, with Her Majesty's or His Majesty's aeroplane. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Um, now, about this stage, the, uh, the, the replacement for the Sabre was starting to arrive on the scene. This was the, the Dassault Mirage. Mm-hmm. Mirage 030 was our model. Don't know where the O came from. Probably stood for Oz, and it had a lot of teething troubles. Most of the guys were saying, "Oh yeah, we're going to move on to the, the new hot ship and all the rest of it." And I was of mixed feelings because one of the early ones that we had about three or four turned up at Williamtown almost as prototype. They weren't operate assigned to any um, any squadron. They were being flown by a few pilots just to see how they fitted in and what problems they had. Wow, did they have problems? I think the Australian because one of the deals was the Australian. Uh, Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation again had a deal with Dassault and they actually made them in Australia except for the first three or four I think they imported from France and the later ones were all made in Australia which right. was a pretty good deal from the point of view of the, the economy um, and I think they made something like 250 modifications to them just to make them more viable for so-called Australian conditions wow. but those Australian conditions included things like making the hydraulic system work properly I, I actually remember seeing one four a little later on, four Miros parked there, all started their engines, and one of them's nose wheel just collapsed. Okay. Because apparently the hydraulic system was quite weird, and there was a lot of interaction between one system or the other. It was nothing for a Miros to pop his speed brakes out and have the undercarriage extend or retract. If he's in, if he's, he's got the wheels down, he closes his speed brakes and the wheels come up too. And there was all sorts of problems with the hydraulic system. And also with the starting, uh, it didn't have a... Uh, uh, as, as an explosive starter motors we had with this thing called an isopropyl nitrate uh, charged thing which was whooshed the airplane from zero to 3,000 rpm in about three seconds. Um, they, they had the, I think it was an electric start or something, it didn't work so you had to make sure they were pointing into the wind because if you had a tailwind that would blow the flame out before it got lit yeah. and there was a lot of teething troubles and I'm thinking straight away, oh I don't know about this, you know, one, one could get onto these airplanes and not do much flying. Yeah, yeah. And then I got a chance of actually sitting in the cockpit of one of these new toys, one of these. I, I went down there and climbed up the ladder. And, and as soon as I sat down, I thought, oh, no, it's a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> the French and the British were exactly the same philosophy. You squeeze the pilot in somewhere. It was this cramped little cockpit compared with the Sabre. And I thought, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> it might go fast occasionally when you can make the thing work. So I was very much leaning towards staying with the Sabre because I've now totally fallen in love with this airplane. It would do whatever I wanted. But they then started to exercise it um, to see what its radar capability was and all that sort of stuff. Because it had this big radar out the front called a Serrano radar. Um, people don't realise where that name came from. Serrano de Bourgerac, one of those uh, those French dandies from, from uh, historical times, had a big nose apparently. Right. And, the, and, and uh, this radar dome stuck out the front, like, looked like Serrano's nose. So it was called a Serrano radar. But it was nothing like a modern radar. It was not the TV screen with the symbols on it. It was just a raw radar right. with fuzzy lines. and also They even had a rubber tube over it, so the pilot would put his head inside that to stop reflections from navigation, or from daylight from, from, from reflections from the sun, but even at nighttime, reflections from other instruments and lights and so from the cockpit. Okay. So he could focus on them. And this thing, theoretically, would take over from a radar intercept controller 
from about 20 miles out. So instead of the radar control having to put him into half a mile line astern, he'd get him somewhere within about a 20 mile radius and then a Serrano radar would pick up the target and feed the pilot and he would use the code word Judy, meaning I've you know, got contact, yeah. punch and Judy. Punch was I fired something, Judy was the old puppet show. Yeah. You got a radar locker. So they were working out a new procedure for the radar controls on the ground to put the, the Mirage within 20 miles radius or so, and then for the for the pilot to actually take over and control the intercept himself from then on, which was never been done before in Australian Air Force. <clears throat> so they and they decided initially they did this uh, in, in uh, the daylight because we had to be the targets. Yeah. Us Sabre pilots had to go and be the targets. <clears throat> so we did a lot of this in daylight. It seemed to work all right. And, uh, and then we started doing it at night. And I remember doing this one particular night flight. In fact, let me just, before I get onto that, just say one thing. Inside the radar um, tube of the Mirage was a little, like, looked like a, at the bottom of the radar screen was like a little artificial horizon. Okay. okay? And all you had to do was keep the wings level with the horizon bar, like if you want to fly level like any artificial horizon. Yeah. Except the horizon in this was then went through a computer. And once it, the radar was locked on, it would then tilt the this artificial horizon to give you an intercept curve to the target. So it wasn't real horizontal. So if you then flew what appeared to be a straight and level on this little thing, it would actually steer you to the target. And sometimes you could have up to 45 degrees of bank. Okay showing this thing level because it wasn't an artificial horizon, it was sight orders it was called. Yeah. So once you got sight orders, you followed this thing exclusively and it would bring you to the target. <clears throat> Good idea, they thought. Um, this particular night, I was tasked to go and do uh, a low level uh, targeting run, which meant I had to go about 20 miles out to sea, just out of sight of land, the lights of land, in the dark. And that's quite lonely sitting in this little jet at 500 feet above the water yeah. for about two hours because I'm carrying the big ferry tanks to extend this thing, trucking up and down between a point off Sydney to a point somewhere off Tyree, about a 150 mile tow length and turn around and do it again, back and forth, back and forth. And the Mirage, would, I was on the same frequency as the Mirage, so I could hear what was going on to stop getting totally bored. And so I'm sitting there in my little cocoon with my little red lights turned way down. And feeling quite lonely, but I could hear this guy coming in, being wrecked in, saying Judy, and a few minutes later I'd see these lights go zooming past over my head as he'd done his thing and pulled away to do it again. Yeah. After about an hour, I noticed this ship going into Sydney, um, the lights of the ship, and I thought, oh, there's, there's, there's other life out here. Yeah. <laughs> this is good. It made me feel like I was still attached to planet Earth. And as it turned out, uh, on one of the runs, a couple of runs later, the ship had moved in close enough that he was almost in front of me as I'm running towards him. Yep. And the Mirage was starting his next pass. So I thought to myself, why don't I just ease over the top of the ship? And that would give the people on the ship a real thrill because these two jets will go zooming over the top of them at you know, 500 feet yeah. and, uh, and out of the blue. Just a bit of a thrill. I only had to ease left about five or six degrees to so just track right across the top of the ship. And the timing just worked out perfectly. So the Mirage is called Judy. He's locked onto me. <clears throat> he thinks and I'm waiting for him to go past, and the next thing I hear is, holy shit, as this pair of lights go past underneath me, at least 300 feet underneath me. His radar has transferred lock to a larger target, the ship. <laughs> He's doing an intercept on this ship. And I spoke to the pilot afterwards, after he stopped abusing me <laughs> on the ground, and he said he felt something was wrong because he was used to the sort of the, the G-forces and the curve that he'd been attacked, and suddenly it felt like he was he just intuitive, it felt a bit steeper. So he pulled his head back and looked out the front, and all he saw was a ship filling his windscreen. Wow. And we all both thought, wow, well, that's a bit dodgy. 
Subsequent, we lost three, maybe four mirages this way, physically lost them wow. with this problem, the transferring lock to a target. Getting ahead of myself now, the commanding officer of 75 Squadron in Malaya, uh, a couple of few years later, flew into a small island in the Malacca Straits doing a night intercept because his radar had transferred lock. Another friend of mine flew into the side of a mountain using this thing as a ground mapping radar, which it wasn't designed for either. And you had to pick your way between the radar shadows and the mountains, a bit like flying around the southern mountains in, in New Zealand below safety height on this crappy old radar. And he just flew straight into the side of a mountain. Wow. Okay, at the height he was supposed to be. You know, they found the wreckage. Well, there it was. He was just displaced. He was flying into a radar, into a, a mountain rather than the shadow, or in the shadow rather than whatever how they worked it. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's a whole bunch of people um, did not really like this system at all. <clears throat> By this stage, of course, I've decided. Well, and truly, I'm not going to fly this airplane. Yeah, yeah. I'm not the slightest interested in doing this at all. It seemed like it was just a bit too dodgy. Yeah. Um, so my life for the last oh, six months or so settled down to either having fun in Darwin or flying radar um, targets for mirages. Every once in a while in the daytime, we would actually get to dogfight the mirage. And, and that was the first time I'd ever had a dogfight with a dissimilar type aeroplane right. and learnt very quickly the disadvantages of a delta wing at subsonic speed. Yes, it was very fast because zooming along at one and a half Mach as an interceptor because it was designed as a uh, as a point interceptor to defend France against the Ruskies. Yeah. <clears throat> but once you start dogfighting it, it just stopped dead in the air. Okay. And so I used to develop this very gung-ho philosophy that if I can see the mirage, he's dead. <laughs> because I could outmaneuver him. And once he started to turn, he could not run away. And if he tried to, I put a missile up his bum. And if he didn't, I'd shoot him down with guns. And that was pretty much the way. I must admit that most of the guys who were getting onto the mirage were still trying to fly up like they would a Sabre, using Sabre-type tactics, which it didn't do. Uh, that sort of aeroplane is not designed as a dogfighter. You've got to use your radar, come zooming in, fire a missile, and zoom away and go way outside of eyeball distance from a Sabre and then turn and come back in again. Yeah. Once you try and do these close quarter turning fights, um, it didn't work. As I, uh, as I talk about another time, uh, experience I had with other dissimilar aeroplanes later on was all much like that because the Sabre was actually a very agile little dogfighting aeroplane uh, as a jet compared with these. But they were still early days of developmental stuff and um, so I was not particularly wrapped in them at all. A lot of guys wanted to go on them because they were faster but I just wanted to, the fun of flying a very reliable aeroplane because by now the Sabre was completely reliable. There's hardly anything went wrong with it because it had just all been fixed long before I got there. Yeah, and it was really cool. So towards the end of this period, they, uh, they decided that I was now... I'd served my apprenticeship, if you like, yeah. and I was awarded a Category B. I'm now a Category B fighter pilot, and I'm about halfway up the pecking order in the, in the, uh, the squadron. I'm 21. Yeah. And there's only about four or five guys older than me, not counting the boss who was much older. My, my boss then in those days uh, was an ex-Korean Mustang pilot, okay. a really nice guy. And everyone else was coming in was you know, junior or younger than me. The average age in the entire fighter squadron was about 21. Wow. Yeah, we're all just a bunch of kids. Yeah. Boy racers, kids. And, uh, and then the big change came. Out of the blue, as I'd already, I've been offered as a lot of us were, you put in what's called posting preferences. You know, do you want to go here, go there? That didn't mean you got it, but it meant if there was any, 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 any slack in the thing, they'd give you what you wanted. And I'd always said, I want to go to Butterworth. I do want to fly the Mirage, whereas everyone else was saying, I want to fly the Mirage. Yeah. So after 20 months in 76 Squadron, I got the posting order to go to, to Butterworth, out of the blue. You got one week to get there. 
Right. Yeah? Okay. And this is where I think I might have alluded to way back at the beginning. So they went, oh, big rush. Let's uh, get him a passport and all the rest of it. So they applied for a passport and it was rejected. <laughs> That's when the, the Australian authorities said, well, he doesn't belong to us. And I, I suppose we could have, as I've learned later on, we could have worked around that, but there was no time. I had to be there in a week's time because one of the guys up there had injured himself, apparently. And I had to replace him very quickly because I had to stay at full strength because of what was going on up there. Yeah. And so they said, oh, bugger, get him a New Zealand passport. So I went up there as a New Zealander. I'm still thinking, oh, <laughs> I'm a New Zealander. <laughs> Which, where is that? <laughs> and uh, so I arrive up in, uh, in, in Butterworth Air Base in... Uh, 1965, late 1965. I mean, literally, I, uh, I had my last flight uh, in um, in in Williamtown. I think I've just read a little note here. 24th of September was my last flight, and by the 1st of October, I'm flying in Butterworth. So it was you know, quite a quite a quick swap over. Okay. And of course, I thought that well, flying up there is going to be the same, but it wasn't. It was quite different. It was a whole different environment up there, and so many different levels. I can talk about this in more detail later on, but not only did they have confrontation going on, and they're more serious there, uh, we had uh, an RAF squadron Gloucester Javelins parked uh, there too, and they did the night alert. Our job was the day fighter alert, and they would have the Javelins night alert, because yeah. that's what they were designed for. Um, that's all they were good for, the, the big, heavy delta wing, um, about twice the weight of a, of a Mirage with half the power, they were a bit of a dog, but you know they had yeah. the radar and the missiles and all the rest of it. So, so they were pretty full on there. But the other thing, that, uh, and the reason why they had to send supplementary pilots from Australia when the, when it first hit the fan, was that also they had a commitment in Thailand. That okay. the the RAAF uh, in Butterworth was also supporting a half size squadron up in Thailand, part of the CATO organisation. Right. And if you like, we'll treat that as a separate. Um, talk because I can go on for quite a bit about that and, and the situation that, that, that happened there. Sure, yeah. So that covers that time. Now, throughout all of this time, I was still, well, I could, back in, in Williamtown, heading off and, and flying a CV aeroplane. So I was a bit of a flying nut, if you like. Yeah, yeah. So I checked myself, I got checked out on uh, Cessna 182, and I got, because I wanted me to drop some parachutes, and I got checked out on a, a little Victor Air Tour, which had just come on the market. Uh, 100 horsepower, a little agile thing, I rather liked it. It was a yep. cute little machine. But I spent most of my time flying a Tiger Moth. I fell in love with the old Tiger Moth, and I used to take all my uh, my knucklehead bunnies, buddies out. Knucklehead is a term of endearment for fighter pilot, by the yes, way. Yes, yes, yeah. uh, I think it started out as a disparaging remark, but it became adopted, and so if you're a knuck. Yeah, I used to take all my knuck buddies out, and we'd take up rolls and rolls, armfuls of, of toilet rolls, and go streamer cutting in the old Tiger Moth. And that was that was... Really close quarter dogfighting because you could turn the tiger moth in its own length and hook around and do all this sort of stuff. And I can recall one of my, my friends at the time, he, uh, he was really interested in, in, in checking out on this airplane himself. He had a civilian license. He came from, I don't know where he came from, a different course to me. And I remember one day we hired this airplane and I sat in the back seat, which is the pilot seat, and we flew it across to another airfield and swapped seats. And I became his instructor, completely unofficial. And he gets in the back, so we would do about an hour mucking around in circuits and all the rest of it, and then landed back at this outfield and then swapped seats back and flew back in, walked back in, and Stan Hearn was there with a grin in his face. He said, well, do you, how did he handle it? Do I, do I endorse him? I said, what do you mean? He said, I know what you were doing. <laughs> so he, he gave him the logbook endorsement, checked on Tiger Moths on the basis of the fact that I checked him out. 
Now, the reason I mention this is because a thousand years later, this guy joins the civil aviation department when I'm running a flying school. Yep. And he starts giving me a, a hard time over, over something. And I just reminded him where he got his target model checkout. <laughs> and he shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of these, these things finally come home to roost. Yeah. Uh, and of course, when I was sent to Butterworth, that ended my civilian flying. But I suppose I got about, oh, I don't know, 50, 60 hours on Tiger Moth at that stage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fun machine. Just before we leave the story of uh, 76 Squadron, mm-hmm. what was the social life like? And did, did, <laughs> did, did you have some sort of, uh, you know, special sort of squadron uh, esprit de corps type? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely, yeah. 75 Squadron down the road and 76 Squadron were always at each other socially and so forth. We used to have these regular officers mess balls and um, uh, who could decorate their squadron corner bigger and better than the rest. I remember we, we had a, a, a guy who was a very good artist in the, in the Rigby style. In fact, I've got a couple of cards still running. In those, you know, people, most of the older generation may remember, there was a movie out called The Pink Panther. Yes. And it had this wonderful panther-shaped pussycat thing with a big curl tail all in pink. Well, we adopted that, but made it black, of course, because our, our squadron insignia was a black panther. Yeah. And that became our insignia. And I can remember sitting down making huge murals of this and hanging on the officers. Well, we even got to the point of painting on a banner and floating it by met balloons outside the mess and all sorts of things. So we had this thing going on the whole time. And, of course, Newcastle was a fairly busy place in those days, got big steel mills there. And, of course, so you had the nurses' quarters and you had all sorts of... How can I put it? If any of the places in town needed an escort for something, there was this smorgasbord, this, this, this bulk store of, of young guys out there only willing. So we were invited to escort people for their debuts and I can remember we got involved with the Miss Hunter Valley quest and had to escort all the girls there. So a lot of liaisons were were um, um, engineered as a result of this sort of stuff. In fact, a lot of the guys have married Newcastle girls, including myself. Right. Right? So yeah, the social life there was really good. I wasn't going to touch on that because you know, it got a bit risque sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, there's always this, I must have had a good fun poking fun at each other, we'd always have little barbs. And of course, if ever every, every you got a chance to actually engage in air combat with someone from the other squadron, oh, that was a hoot. You know, normally you go up and you do your own thing. And of course, we all had, all the airplanes were marked sig- sufficiently to be able to tell them from a moderate, at least from gun range, where it was. 76 squadron had red, red with black stripes. So we had a red nose, red wingtips, and a red flash on the fin. 75 squadron were black. They had a black nose, black wingtips. And the operational conversion unit, which had all initial training, were yellow. Okay? And I recall one stage in 76 squadron, we were up doing a four versus four, sorry, two versus two combat, which is four aeroplanes. And 75 squadron also happened to be up doing the same thing in a different part of the sky, as did the conversion unit. Doing with their students and their first one, and somehow we all managed to get in tangled up together. <laughs> so we we had uh, twelve aeroplanes with three different colours all over the sky, and of course it was just on for young and old. Yeah. And uh, any any colour that wasn't yours, you would have a shot at. So it was either yellow or black was the enemy. If you were flying a black one, it was red or yellow was the enemy. And it went on. This this whole engagement went on for ten or fifteen minutes. And everyone thought it was such good value across the board from, from all sorts of points of view that we had this mass debrief afterwards about, oh, who did what and who got whom and all the rest <laughs> of it. And in the final analysis, it turned out that the only person that everyone agreed was shot down 
was one of the pilots shot down by his own wingman. <laughs> <laughs> he had to buy the bar for everyone on all the squadrons that night. <laughs> because whilst we had some gun camera film, the poor guys who developed, because this is all 16mm film we used to run, it wasn't video or instant replay, it had yeah. to be developed and all that sort of stuff, and it was only given back to us in the negative form. But they were suddenly inundated with all this gun camera film. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they lost track of which film came from which aeroplane. And it was that being only black and white negative, you couldn't tell the squadron colour from that. So no one. So there was a few shots taken, but no one could tell who shot whom where. Yeah. It was good fun. Yeah, it was good fun. And this was part of the social, <laughs> the, the social engagement, shall we say, at altitude. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I know that in our own Air Force, uh, between the fighter squadrons, there's often a lot of um, stealing of each other's mascots or flags uh, or zapping the aircraft. Did that sort of thing go on in the RAAF in your time? Not, um, not at Williamtown, no. They were very proud of themselves very much. Someone put a, uh, something on my aeroplane with my name or on that style on the No, they were a bit guarded about that there. It was, yeah. it was very much to keep off the grass and all the rest of it. Yeah. Later on, when I got to Thailand with the Americans, totally different story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We used to have so many badges and things stuck over aeroplanes there. It was unbelievable. They had to be stripped and repainted after we brought them home every time. <laughs> and vice versa, as I say. Subject of another another story. Yeah. But yeah, no, there wasn't that much of it there. I don't know, maybe no one thought of it. I think it was pretty pretty straight. I mean, the old story, you have to paint all the rocks white and all sorts sort of stuff. It was very much a, an extended training base until confrontation happened where we realised we might have to get serious. Yeah. So Darwin was a bit more uh, serious, but... Uh, no, that didn't happen. Okay. Didn't okay. Happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you got allocated your own aircraft, um, did you, did the aircraft come with its own specific crew, uh, ground crew? No. No, un- unlike the American system where they had dedicated crews for, and even American system you'd have a dedicated crew for two or three aeroplanes, wasn't just for one. Yeah. No, no, we it was very much like um, a training club in that regard. There was a maintenance facility. Each squadron had its own first line maintenance. Yeah. A bunch of guys who do the daily service and all that sort of stuff. Um, and they looked after them all. You know, the, the squadron had 12 aeroplanes and about 18 pilots. That was about the average strength. Yeah. And uh, you had a team of, I don't know, it must have been 20 or 30 troops, armourers in particular, because we're you know, constantly putting on and taking off bombs and rockets and things like that. So a lot of armourers who actually did their thing on all aeroplanes. So they go out and if we're doing a, uh, a day's worth of rocketry, or which was rocketry, then their job was to go and hang all the rockets and then have a couple of guys down the end of the runway to plug them in before we took off because we never taxi taxied around the base with the, the rockets plugged in in case one of them went whoosh while she was still taxiing past the, the officer's mess or something. <laughs> so you have to taxi down and go to what they call an operational readiness pad, like a run-up bay. And Paul was there while these guys ran along and plugged all the little plugs in the back of the rockets to make them live and then you taxi straight out and take off. Yeah. So I had those guys. And then you had just the general engine fitters, airframe fitters, and so forth. So I suppose each squadron would have had, I don't know, I didn't pay much attention, quite frankly, as a, <laughs> as a young sprog. Yeah. But about 40 or 50 guys who did that. And that was only first-line maintenance. If an airplane had a serious defect, it was then sent down to what they called the, uh, the maintenance squadron, which was a whole separate unit, which did, you know, if you had a busted, busted wheel or something like that, it would go to the maintenance squadron. Anything between engine changes and all that sort of stuff would be done by a separate maintenance squadron. So you physically lose the airplane for a while. And that would come back. Now, interesting you should say that because um, my course graduation photo, when we graduated from um, the conversion course, right, just before I turned 20, I've got a photograph and we're standing, the whole, the eight of us were standing in front of 941 with a yellow paint scheme. Oh, right. Yeah? 
Right. I didn't know at the time it was going to be my aeroplane. Yeah. Six months later, it turns up at, uh, at 76 Grodden with a red paint scheme and my name on the side. It was all freshly painted. So it had obviously gone down to the maintenance depot, probably for an engine change or something like that, and they'd given a tizzy up and changed the colours, and then it was reallocated to, uh, to 76 Grodden. Right. So that sort of you know, longer-term or heavier maintenance, if you like, was done elsewhere. And then, beyond that, there was a thing called the... These, they had different levels of A, B, C, D servicings, and finally there was an E servicing. The reason I mention that is because this comes to the light later on. An E servicing is where the aeroplane is stripped right down to nuts and bolts and rebuilt from the ground up. Yeah. And that's done off base. It was done up at Ambly Air Base, a place called the, the Aircraft Depot. The aeroplane would go in there and stay there for three months. And they literally pulled it all apart and just replaced everything that looked slightly worn. And out the other end would come a brand spanking new Sabre. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. So these different levels of servicing, I think A's, A's and D's were done at the squadron, C's and D's were done at the thing down the road, and then E's were finally done off base. So that was sort of the, the thing, but there was no dedicated crew for each uh, each aeroplane, no. The long answer to a simple question. Yeah, yeah no, that's interesting. Though. Um, and really my f- um, sort of final two-part question, does 941 still exist now? Oh, I'm sorry you should ask that. Oh, dear. <laughs> For years and years, uh, it, 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 it survived. I, I tracked it down oh, some years back and found that it had went to um, the Commonwealth Aeronautical Research Establishment down in Melbourne and was used as a training aid down there. Someone sent me a photograph just recently of this hulk of an aeroplane lying in a paddock in pieces with 941 tail number on it. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's out there on a scrap heap somewhere now. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, it was. At least I'd like to think it was in a university somewhere being used as a... No, it, it's, it's gone the way just about all of them have gone, really. I mean, yeah. there's only one left, and that's, uh, that's 983, the one at, uh, at Tamora now, in the yeah. 75 Squadron aerobatic team. That just people have seen that one. The, the one, 983 now at Tamora, I flew that uh, uh, just before I left uh, Flying Sabres, actually. one of the last aeroplanes I flew. Okay. But anyway... Um, when I first got to Williamtown, they had an aerobatic team. Right? In those days, there was enough money around for there'd be two jet aerobatic teams in the Air Force. Two! Wow. Well, two. Yeah. Anyway, one now. Uh, one was run by Support Command, which was the training command, and so the, the, all the flying instructors at Central Flying School had an aerobatic team, um, which I think originally were called the, the Red Sails, and they all managed to fly to the ground and kill each other. And then they went to... Uh, um, I think they call them the Telstars, something like that. Anyway, they're all vampires. Yeah. And then the operational command, that's where the, you know, the serious stuff was done, had an aerobatic team. And that was allocated between squadrons um, in Australia, which there's only two of them. When I first got there, number 75 squadron had the job of the team, and uh, they were called the Black Diamonds. So as a result, they had the big black diamonds on the side with this black band around them, which was not standard squadron markings. So they only had right. four, maybe five aeroplanes painted like that. And they were the uh, the formation team. Just before I left um, to go north, 76 Squadron got the job. And they formed a team called the Panthers. Um, I think they knew that, I don't know, I'm, I was on the short stick of, of leaving, so I didn't get a, a, a seat with them. A couple of the junior guys actually got some got to ride with them. Yeah. But I must admit, uh, you, you've raised that subject about this sort of thing. Um, I did learn something, learn something. Uh, very early days uh, of this, because again, the, the military in those days had lots of money, so it was an air show every year at every base. Yeah. And uh, when I first got to the squadron, there was an air show only about a month afterwards. And of course, with my 
my a huge amount of experience in my category C meant I sat on the ground and did nothing towards this air show. Yeah. So I actually went out and wandered around and made like a crowd. Looked at the static displays and watched the air show. And uh, the Black Diamonds did their thing. And by today's standards, it was probably a bit boring. The, the, the whole routine consisted of a loop, wing over, loop, wing over, loop, wing over, back and forth in front of the crowd. Yeah. But what the guys did was they changed formation sometimes two and three times throughout the loop. All right. In other words, they were exhibiting pilot skill, and it was really cool. And I'm standing there going, wow, that's really cool. These guys are good. You know, you, they pull up into a loop in a diamond formation, they change the line of breast and come back out and line of stone in the one loop. But the average person in the crowd was bored. So I'm looking around at the crowd, and they're you know, just looking at other things because they did not get it. Yeah. And I felt like saying, hey, look at this. This is really cool. And then 76 squadrons, they weren't allowed to do a formation routine, but they were in the air show. So their version... Uh, to, to thrill the crowd was to beat the crap out of the airfield at low level and they put up six aeroplanes and they just zoomed up and down at low level and steep turns and made as much noise as they could and the crowd thought it was great and I thought ah so that's what crowds like <laughs> I don't care about the skill of the, the flying all I want is to beat the crap out of them and I, I filed this away for future reference when I go into air shows many 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 years later right, right. how to entertain a crowd is just to make lots of noise <laughs> and, and, make, and make the crowd think that you're going to crash but you don't yeah, yeah the, the two magic things to do. The, the, the pure skill of, of, of flying is lost on 99%. But I thought the Black Diamond was a really good team. Okay. Uh, later on, when they did form the Panthers, uh, the first thing they did is hang dummy missiles underneath to make them more operational and didn't do any of the great formation changes at all. They basically stuck in one formation change but brought it lower and faster and tighter and, and mixed it up a bit more. And okay. it was actually um, better received by the crowd, but it didn't involve the same degree of finesse if you like so there you go <clears throat> i think i wandered off the question there somewhere well the, uh, <laughs> the the second part of my question was going to be um have you or do you know if you flew any of the um sabers that are in new zealand now particularly the one up at aspex um and there's a couple of other yeah, are there australian there. sabers in new zealand the one at aspex definitely is oh then i've flown it okay basically i've flown every saber that we had at the time i mean Australia originally built 120 CA-27s was their official title. Yeah. By the time I got to fly them, I think we'd crashed about a dozen, one reason or another. Um, and I've flown everyone since then, except maybe, you know, I'm guessing you know, we also crashed a whole bunch whilst I was flying them. We had a, a number of accidents and airplanes written, I suppose, another dozen. I know about a dozen guys that aren't with us anymore because they crashed for one reason or another. Yeah. So I don't know what number they were flying, and I don't know whether they flew it before they crashed it or afterwards, so I might have missed out on a couple. But if it still survived, yes, I flew it. Okay. At some point. Yeah. Because I did a total of about 1,600 hours on the Sabre, which in the average of 50-minute sorties means I've done about 2,000 sorties. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. So, yeah, somewhere in there. That, the 100 or so airplanes that are left over 2,000 sorties logically suggest that I've flown each one of them 10 times, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except 941, I flew that the most. Right, right. <laughs> well, I could. Yeah, I, you know what tail numbers they are? Uh, I will look that up for the next session. I didn't realise there were Australian Sabres there. I know there's one out at um, uh, Tauranga, which is an American 86E. Oh, that is American, okay. Yeah, that's definitely American. Well, you can easily tell the difference. Five of them came here in one that, batch. Oh, okay. and that, that one in Tauranga, and there's one that went to Nelson with Bill Reed. Um, and then the the Avspex one with, that belongs to Jerry Yeager. Oh, okay. And that's a, that certainly is a um, CAC. Oh, good. Session. Well, it's good. I hope you get. But I'm not sure if any. I'm not sure whether there are any others among them. I'll check that out. 
Yeah, that would be interesting to know. Uh, it's easy to tell the difference between the American F-86 and the, the Australian CA-27. Um, just look at the guns. Okay. The, uh, the F-86 had six little guns, little .5 machine guns, which you know, pea yep. shooters, really. Yep. The Australian Sabre has a big 30mm cannon single gun port on each side, there are two of them. Yep. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and it's harder to tell, of course, but the hole at the front of the Australian Sabre is bigger by about six inches. Oh, right. Um, okay. The nose of the, the the top of the cowling of the 86 curves down a bit more. Ours was lifted a bit because being a, a more powerful engine, it has to suck more air. It has to come from somewhere, so they made a bigger hole down the front. It's only about six inches, yeah. so it's hard to tell. But the guns is the is the, is the, is the simple way to tell. Um, if you're familiar with the uh, with the design, you can tell other things like um, to remove the engine, for instance. You literally took off the entire tail from just behind the the wing. Right. Okay. Yep. Now the Australian engine, even though it was more powerful, was lighter and was mounted further back. So this field brake line, as it's called, is further back on the Australian Sabre and it's vertical, whereas the American one is further forward and it's a slightly angled, uh, like a slice, a slight angle through the fuselage. Okay. Um, but they're they're only for the rivet counters to understand that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I must mention one one little thing. It just occurred to me uh, with the. Uh, we talked about the guns on the aeroplane. I mentioned earlier on that the uh, Australian Sabre had uh, 120 rounds. I should have said 120 rounds per gun, because yep. when you pull the trigger, both guns fired. But that was in its, um, shall we say, its training capacity, because all the unexpended cartridges were not thrown overboard. They were saved internally in a separate little bin, yep. recycled into the main ammo bin. I'm not quite sure how that worked. Now. Um, if, however, you fitted the overboard ejectors for the cartridges, so you spewed them out the bottom as you fired, then you could fit 150 rounds, which took you from about 10 seconds of firing up to about 12 seconds of firing. <laughs> That's okay, as long as you're hitting them, one second's enough, because you've yeah. got the big bullets. And the thought that just popped into my head, uh, the Vampire, with the 20mm Hispana, only had overboard ejection. And when we used to fire on the range at uh, Saltash, just north of Williamtown, yeah. you spew all these brass rounds all over the, the real estate. By the next morning, it was all gone. The locals knew when the vampires were firing, there was brass. <laughs> and they would literally be standing around the boundary fence with their sacks, waiting for the, to see the range safety officer pull the red flag down, which means they're all going home and they'd be on. Maybe it does not. I've seen them there one day. And they would rush onto the range and pick up all the brass and go and sell it. Wow. The Sabre, of course, collected its own brass, so they didn't like that too much. And then the Mirage came along with 30mm guns, uh, but used to spew them overboard, because the Mirage, being a slightly smaller, slimmer aeroplane, the front had nowhere to store them. Yeah. And so they'd all rush on again, only to discover that the Mirage's ones were stainless steel <laughs> and wasn't worth a crumpet. <laughs> and of course, that, in that increased the expense to the Commonwealth, because they had to send these potato-digging machines in every once in a while and get them all because you had too much metal lying around and you hit a piece of metal with an, a bullet from another gun on another day, you could kick this thing up in the air and get yourself a ricochet, not from your own bullet, but from something that was lying on the ground. Yeah, yeah. There was a case up in Butterworth, I remember, of a Sabre which lost its engine, managed to glide back home, uh, because it got a ricochet down the front from a 20 millimeter or, or smaller shell fired from a meteor. It had been lying in the sand for about 20 years. Wow. Just managed to find it, kick it straight up in the sky and went straight down the intake. So yeah, one had to be careful of these things. Yeah, yeah. And again, I digressed a bit. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the subject of, of what happened up in Butterworth and beyond 
I thought that would be another 30 minute one. It's going to be at least another hour one, so we should do that another time, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we'll come back to um, your time at Butterworth at the next episode. Okay. Thank you very much, Alan. <laughs> okay, thanks, Dave. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.